If we refuse to do that, which we are mandated by distributive justice to do, it seems to be a further injustice. If in addition, we say to those people, ah, no, sorry, we're not even going to allow you to sell a kidney, you know, to help your child. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Political Philosophy Podcast. My name is Toby Buckle, and it's really, really great to have all of you here. This podcast is going to feature an interview every week with a prominent philosopher or a public figure who has something interesting to say about political philosophy. It's going to be a mid-range format, meaning about 45 to 50 minutes per interview, So this is some conversations to listen to for your commute, some discussions while walking the dog or the digression while doing the dishes, and I don't have any more alliteration to go with that. My goal here is I am incredibly passionate about this subject. I love it, and I could just think about it for days, and I want to share that with all of you. I also want to share how the political politics, as it were, is something that's inside you and all around you. It's something that's in everything that you do. It's not just this thing that happens in the news or in the halls of power. It's necessary and desirable to the human condition. So this isn't going to be just one more political talk show where the only purpose is to defend one of the main political parties, though I have my personal preference on them, certainly. Nor is it going to be to simply defend a particular ideological position or to attack a different ideological position. There's a lot of this going on right now, and it's necessary and important, but actually it can be a bit narrow-sighted. And I want to ask some deeper questions surrounding that. I am a person of the left, and I'm going to make no bones about that on this podcast, but I want to ask some questions of why do left-wing values exist in the first place? How did they come to be? What do they mean today? And what are all of the different things in the landscape around that? What are all of the different ideological positions out there? And what does all that mean for us and how we live our lives? The one thing I'm most excited to bring you for this podcast series is our guests. I am incredibly grateful and somewhat overwhelmed by how awesome the response to my interview invites has been. We have got some of the most qualified and capable people, literally and without hyperbole, in the world to talk on these issues. I'm wary of taking too much time up in this introduction, and I do just want to get straight to our first interview. So I'm going to save the full list of people speaking on the show until the second, but please do stick around because we have some incredible people coming. Talking of which, my first guest is Professor Cecile Farb. 
Cécile Fab is a French-born political philosopher, moral philosopher, and academic. She's currently the professor of political philosophy at Oxford University, and will become the university proctor this year. Uh, professor Fab has been thinking and writing about these issues and producing some really interesting and provocative books, including Social Rights Under the Constitution, Whose Body Is It Anyway?, Justice in a Changing World, and Cosmopolitan War, and Cosmopolitan Peace. I so enjoyed this conversation, and I've decided to make it the first interview in our series, even though it's a very challenging conversation in a lot of ways. We get into some really controversial moral issues. We discuss the case for legalising prostitution or sex work. We get into the case for legalising a free trade, a commodification of human organs. We discuss income inequality. And if you're wondering what all those things have to do with each other, then wait and see for our interview, because we draw some fairly clear lines between them. But we're actually kind of playing a trick here, which I'll give away at the outset, which is this. We're asking you to notice how you feel, what your intuitions are about these different issues. And I'll track my own intuitions as we, we go through this. And then to simply notice that the way you feel about one of these issues or about one of the arguments for one of these issues probably isn't coherent or logically compatible with how you feel about one of the others. And once you notice that contradiction, a trapdoor opens in your mind through which lies the strange and weird world of meta-ethics, which is where we're going to guide you in this conversation. So I so appreciated this conversation and I so appreciated both the disagreements and the areas of genuine ethical insight I think we got out of this. More than anything, this conversation is challenging you. What's going on in your head? Why is it that you feel a certain way? And what does that mean? So, without further preamble, I've talked for a little bit. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Cecile Farb. today with Cecile Fab from Oxford University. Professor, yeah. welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I just want to jump into some of the really interesting issues that you've been writing about. Before we do, why don't you just tell our audience a bit about you, the issues that you write on, 
And how, how do you see yourself? What, if someone asks, what do you do? How do you answer that question? So I, I see myself as um, uh, essentially a moral and political philosopher. Um, I've worked on um, various topics, you know, over the years, um, the rights that we have over material resources that we need, such as income, um, the rights that we have or don't have, you know, over in body. Mm-hmm. I've written about prostitution, organ sales, you know, surrogate motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last eight years or so, I've written mostly on the ethics of war and uh, peace, you know, after war. And recently, I've become more interested in the ethics of uh, foreign policy, um, as well as the ethics of espionage. Actually, that's my current, that's my current project. Um, so I'm interested in in basically rights, you know, in general. Um, and in particular, rights of ourselves and rights in relation to the use of force. Fantastic. So let's start with the first thing you mentioned, which is um, which is sex work or prostitution or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I generally say, this is an aside, I generally say sex work because I find prostitution just yes, has a very, sort of... Yeah, yeah fair enough. It, it, it comes pre-stigmatised, as it were. Um, I think we're finally getting to the point, at least on the left, where people are open to hearing this argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like you to invite you to to make it for us. Should sex work be criminalised? And if not, why not? So I don't think sex work you know, should be criminalised. Um, I mean, even if you think that sex work is immoral... And I don't think that. But even if you think that sex works is immoral, it doesn't follow you know, that the state should turn it into a criminal offence. So first of all, you know, it seems very unfair, unjust even, to brand as criminals, you know, prostitutes who very often, you know, enter into sex work because they don't have that many, you know, other options. Um, second of all, you know, turning to uh, the case of uh, customers, you know, or clients. Um, again, it seems to me that the act itself of buying you know, sex, even if it is immoral, is not wrong enough to warrant being branded a criminal. Um, So the general headline, you know, is this, you know, given how stigmatizing indeed and burdensome it is, you know, to be subject to a criminal sentence, the offense that one commits has to be very, very serious indeed. And I find it very difficult to see how we could mount an argument plausible argument to the effect that the mere act of buying or selling sex falls into that category. Do you think it's innately immoral? I mean, assuming, no. you know, consent and whatever is met. Yeah, so so, so assuming consent, no, I, I don't think there is anything wrong per se with the mere fact of offering money to have sex and giving money, giving sex, you know, conditional, you know, upon receiving money for it. What people find very, very troublesome, you know, about sex work has little to do, it seems to me, particularly in a more secular age, has little to do, you know, with the fact that an exchange takes place involving money and sex. And I think it has more to do with what goes around, you know, that. So it has more to do with trafficking, you know, for example, or with exploitation, you know. Uh, but, but, you know, the, these phenomena, you know, important though they are, you know, are contingent. You know, they're not part and parcel of the uh, sex work, you know, encounter. 
so let's just run through some of the common counter arguments you get um, yeah. and just take them off the table sure. fairly quickly. We already dealt with the idea of innate immorality. I mean, I agree with you. People have sex for all sorts of reasons. Sure. And this one doesn't seem innately immoral, but even if it is, that's not sufficient grounds for criminalization. The next one you just alluded to is the first thing people will say if you talk about legalizing sex work is, but my God, don't you realize how many prostitutes are trafficked? Um, what would be your response to that? So, so my response to that, you know, would be the following. Well, then, you know, make, make trafficking, you know, a criminal offense, which, by the way, you know, would um, exonerate the prostitutes themselves, you know, from criminalization, the traffickers and those who are complicitous, you know, in the trafficking, you know, you know, might, you know, be regarded, you know, as criminals, but that's different from making the act itself, you know, of exchanging, you know, money for sex or sex for money, you know, a criminal offence. Yeah, it just seems to me like a bad faith argument, because it's like saying, if you said, I think boxing should be legal, and someone says, so you're in favour of just walking around punching people in the face. Well, no, because one's consensual and the other isn't. Um, The other thing people would say is but you know do we really want to live in a society in which paying for sex becomes the normal way people have sex yeah so i think that i think that's a very good question and it's a very troublesome question there is a follow-up question to that if i may ask it to anticipate would i want my son you know to work as a prostitute Uh, so let, let me let me take them in order i mean i don't want to live in a society in, in which the main way in which people have sex is through commodified, you know, sex work. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of reasons, you know, for this. There is much more, in my view, to sex, you know, than, you know, this particular kind of, you know, exchange, you know, sex ideally, you know, should, um, you know, have a more playful, you know, form and so on and so forth. But again, I mean, it's it's a far cry from saying I don't want to live in a society in which people routinely pay for sex to saying, therefore, you know, we should criminalize it. You know, we should never forget, you know, how portentous, you know, the act of criminalization is. Um, so, so that's that's my first point is the portentousness of criminalization. I mean, the second point, you know, is a more pragmatic point. Um, I mean, you know, it only goes so far, which is that, you know, criminalization probably will not be the answer, you know, to or the best way, you know, to tackling, you know, that worry. You know, I would rather put my face in, you know, proper sex education, a more holistic, you know, sex education at school, you know, from a very young age. Right. And I mean, I think my, yeah, following on from what you said, it seems like if, if there are forms of sex which are much better and much you know, more fulfilling and than, than prostitutional sex, we should be arguing for them. Yes, I agree. Rather I agree. than, and maybe, you know, these worries are better expressed by a more open societal conversation about how good sex can really be as opposed to, to how bad it can be. How bad it can be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um... Um, let's move on to one final objection, which is we live in a very, very unequal society. I mean, I live in America, which is more unequal still. Um, would this just reinforce that inequality? Would it just become poor people, poor women in particular, are forced to sell sexual services and then the rich can just sort of enjoy, as it were, the poor in that way? 
So, um, so two things. I mean, first of all, it already is the case, arguably, um, you know, that you know, poverty um, as well as addiction actually, you know, fuels right. you know prostitution on the uh, on the supply you know side. Um, uh, it's not the case that only wealthy people buy sex. You know, a lot of you know not very wealthy people, you know, buy sex. You know, as well. Um, I mean, the worry here, you know, is this um, that there are you know forms of economic and social domination, you know, which prostitution both embodies but also you know strengthens. And you know, again, you know, all of that um, has to be taken on board, but. Once more, it does not follow that the best response to this, you know, is criminalization. You know, the best response to this is a proper distribution of resources. You know, more generally, that it seems to me would be the way, you know, to to think about you know inequalities uh, instead of depriving an already very very disadvantaged, you know, group of one of the few means at their disposal. You know, to um, you know, to get some income. It strikes me that almost every argument, and we've covered the main ones that people make against yep. prostitution, could also be made against coal mining as a profession. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's fairly dangerous. It's not great for your health. It is comparatively well paid vis-a-vis yes. other forms of manual labor would we want to live in a society where most people was coal miners is this what yeah. we'd want for our children it, it, it seems like almost line for line yeah. but no one no one you know we might talk on the positive side about getting more clean energy but i don't think anyone would think to criminalize coal mining right yes good yeah so i think you know coal mining is a good example um you know because it's also unsafe or can be very unsafe and you know the same can apply um you know to um you know to prostitution um i mean the example i often use or you know think of in that particular context uh, is not so much you know coal mining but people who work in the fast food you know industry or in very 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 demanding factory you know conditions um you know i, I don't want to go around arguing that we should criminalize mcdonald's um uh, you know right. or manufacture you know a manufacturer in general um so you know proper regulation and you know, um, and working upstream, you know, as it were, on the initial, on the distribution of resources, um, it, you know, seems to me, you know, to be the uh, the way forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to make one more point, yes. um, which is that um, Martha Nussbaum, who has written a bit, you know, about prostitution, um, you know, says in one of her articles, uh, or reminds us in one of her articles, that um, in the Middle Ages, um, if you were a teacher of philosophy, uh, it was regarded as immoral to actually ask to be paid, you know, for your teaching. Um, you know, the thought was, you know, the teaching philosophy is a very noble calling, you know, which is incompatible, you know, with demanding money, you know, for it. Uh, and of course, you know, nowadays, if you go around explaining uh, professional uh, teachers of philosophy that they ought to be willing to dispense their teaching for free, you're not likely to be met, you know, with an enormous amount of sympathy. That only goes to show that um, the kind of value that we attach, you know, to particular good is um, highly or can be very context, you know, specific. And I think we need to bear that in mind as well, you know, when we encounter arguments to the effect that sex is inherently such and such has to be incompatible you know with uh commodification or not apt for commodification 
So I'm just having this thought talking to you now, but I could actually say the same thing about a lot of lines of work that I've done. So I've spent a lot of time working in nonprofit development and essentially right. asking people to give money to charity, right? So there is an innately emotional component to that because people aren't going to be moved to give money on the basis of a statistic. Sometimes they are, but more commonly, you've got to tell a story yeah. about human right. suffering yeah. and human yeah. pain. And to the extent that you are feeling it yourself and you're emotionally invested, you'll be more successful. And so you, you could put the same yeah. argument there of, well, is it wrong for me to get paid for that? Because I'm, it's such a personal thing. It's such an emotional thing. You're really sort of putting something of yourself out there, right? You could say the same for talking about ethical. For, you could say the same you for... Could, we could say for, the same for, about musicians, you yes. know, for example. Um, so I, I mean, I don't know how much time you want to spend on this, but I was watching on YouTube the other day or re-watching an extraordinarily moving performance of Mozart's Requiem. The conductor was Claudio Abado. He mm. was one of the best, you know, conductors of his generation. He died, you know, not so long ago. And at the end of the performance, um, he's almost crying. It's an extraordinary in a moment you know he's very very moved and in fact the audience remains silent for almost a minute you know before the applause takes place so you know there is no doubt whatsoever um that abado was extraordinarily moved you know to to the marrow of his bones you know by this particular performance i would not find it shocking you know to hear that he was paid you know to conduct right that you know but the two but the two are not you know the two are not you know, incompatible, you know, necessarily. So that's another example, you know, to add, you know, to your example of charity work or, you know, non-profit work. So let's let's move on to another thing then, because in in this case, I agree, we sort of have a view of like money and commercialization yeah. as like inherently corrupting somehow, which doesn't necessarily cash out yeah. but one area which you've argued for where I still I think I, I'm still retaining that intuition is the idea of the commercialization of organ sales of organs, yeah. that yeah. to me then then my my intuition that it's it's somehow degrading to to sell your emotional labor <laughs> or your sexual labor I don't really have that intuition but then when it comes to selling your body parts, that intuition just dials right back up to 10 for me. So why don't you, could you walk me through the argument in favour of if I want to sell a kidney or my blood or my bone marrow, yeah. should I be restricted, on like a free market, should I be restricted? So, so this is this is interesting because I suspect that many people, have, many people would have um, the opposite, you know, set of intuitions, you know, from you. You would say, well, no, I think there is a problem you know, emotionally with selling sex, but there is no problem with selling a kidney. I mean, my kidney is not important, you know, to me. So I find it interesting that you seem to be saying, you know, the opposite, you know, of that. Um, I mean, so my argument, my arguments generally in favor of organ sales um, are in some respects similar, you know, to my arguments, you know, in favor, or I should say against the criminalization of, you know, sex work. Um, namely an appeal to freedom, you know, to the freedom to, within limits, and I know we'll come back to that later on, you know, the freedom to dispose of your body, you know, as you wish. Uh, so the thought here is this, you know, in just the same way as it is up to me to decide, you know, the conditions under which I'm willing to have sex, it is up to me to decide, uh, up to a point, you know, the conditions under which, you know, I'm willing to divest myself, 
you know, of my blood, for example, or of a kidney or, or bone marrow. Now, it might be better if I were willing, you know, to give it for free, um, but it's unclear to me that it's immoral of me not to want, you know, to give it for free, at least under certain, you know, circumstances. Um, so, so, you know, appeal to the freedom within limits, the freedom to dispose of your body as you wish is, you know, one kind of argument which I think applies to both, you know, sex works and organs. Now, there is something else, you know, with organs, which I don't find immediately um, uh, apparent, you know, in the case of sex works, you know, which is this. So imagine, as is the case in Britain, actually, that we're not allowed, you know, to sell our kidneys. And picture a transplant operation. Every single member of medical staff who will take part in that operation will be paid. The one person who will not be paid will be the donor, you know, thanks to whom, you know, the operation can actually take place. And I find it very odd that we should say on the one hand that it's entirely fair enough for the surgeon, the nurse, the post-op care assistant to be compensated for the service that they are giving, you know, to the patient, but it is not appropriate for the organ donor to want to be compensated for the fact that he or she has divested herself you know, of their kidney. There is an asymmetry there which I find somewhat problematic. So you would view organs, blood, body parts as essentially a form of capital, a form of wealth. You know, I have my... Yes, I yeah, I would, and I know, I know, I know that's a very, very controversial view. But you know, I feel no attachment whatsoever, um, you know, to those parts, you know, of myself. Um, so, so that's, you know, that informs, you know, in part, you know, um, uh, my arguments, you know, to in favour, you know, of the commodification of organs. So it's weird. Um, it's not just that I have an intuition one way or the other. It's that I find specific counter-arguments convincing in one case and not in the other. So I don't particularly find... So there's two, there's, there's two counter-arguments that are almost directly analogous. There's commodification and exploitation. Yep. We right. talked about commodification a lot, but the image that really sort of troubles me with organ sales is people who are living... You know, there's so many people in America right yes. at the poverty line and the way they get something that their their child desperately needs is they have to sell a kidney and there's already a pretty big life expectancy gap between the poor and the rich would this only exacerbate that that's sort of that that doesn't scare me with prostitution for whatever reason it does with this um so let me get your response to that first and then we can talk about so so so, so um i i can see so I can see one one reason as to why you don't find that problematic in the case of prostitution, whereas you do find it problematic in the case of kidneys, which is that um, you know to actually go through life with only one kidney is not trivial. You know it, it can really right. be fairly severe you know health problems you know further down the line. So so one interesting you know a question to you. Um, you know, or, or thought, you know, for you to ponder is whether or not you would have the same reservations about blood, you know, donation um, or donation of liver cells, which, you know, replenish or bone marrow, you know, donations. Um, so, so, so that's one, 
that's the first thought, which I think is worth, you know, bearing in mind. But let's stay with the kidney, you know, example. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, I am deeply worried and, you know, morally exercised by the profoundly unjust situation which you describe, in which, you know, people in dire financial straits think that they have no choice but to, you know, sell a kidney. Now, then it seems to me that we have two options. Um, we um, say to those people, well, we are not going to bring about, you know, the social justice reforms, which will mean that you will have more financial resources, you know, than you currently have. Um, so, so option one, we say to those people, well, we're not going to bring about, you know, those reforms, but we will not also allow you to sell a kidney. So basically you have no way out of your predicament whatsoever. Option two, we refuse to bring about those social justice reforms, but we allow, you know, that option, you know, of selling your kidney. Well, it's so clear to me that the second is already worse, you know, than the first. So, you know, to put the point somewhat differently, if we refuse to do that, which we are mandated by distributive justice to do, it seems to be a further injustice. If in addition, we say to those people, ah, no, sorry, we're not even going to allow you to sell a kidney, you know, to help your child. So to answer your question, you, you might actually be changing my mind in real time. No, with regards to blood sales, I don't have I... that intuition. Um, if someone wants to sell their blood, fine, right? I think the kidney, right. the kidney thing sticks in my craw, as it were, because of it is, like you say, non-trivial yeah. to live a yeah. life with one kidney, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, so, 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 so I, think, I, think it's, um, I think it's a very fair point, and um, that's why, you know, in my book, um, I tried as much as I could to separate or to distinguish, you know, between different kinds of, you know, organs, and particularly with respect to how risky you know, it is to live without, you know, that organ, but also relatedly, whether the organ um, or, or tissue replenishes, you know, itself, it seems to me that that, you know, makes a very, very important difference. Um, I mean, I still think that, um, you know, there is something, well, let me put it differently. So, you know, the well-off, we, the better off, have various views about how risky it is to live, you know, without those organs, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and in order you know, to be faithful, you know, to those views, and in order to uh, honour our worries about, you know, exploitation, we block that avenue, you know, to the very poor. Um, but it seems to me that we are asking the very poor to pay a very, very high price for the combination of both our um, uh, insistence that we should be able to live by our own moral commitment on the one hand, and our refusal to distribute resources properly you know, on the other hand, in such a way that they wouldn't ask themselves that question in the first instance, am I going to have to sell my kidney in order to have my child? Does that make sense, what I've just said? Yes, it does. And I think, I think it really goes to add a sort of highlighter, if one were ever needed, to sort of how poisonous inequality can be. Yes. Right? Yeah. Is, so I've actually gone around the block on this, and I've decided after some thought, it's, it's sort of, this is one of the big wheelhouses of political right. philosophy. I don't think wealth inequality is an innate, is, is innately immoral insofar as if I'm in a bar and Bill Gates walks in, the, 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 it's become much right. more unequal, but I don't see that I've been harmed or wronged in any way. With that said, it just bleeds into everything else. 
And it makes making sensible decisions about how you regulate people, how you regulate their sex lives, their bodies, their economic interactions. It makes everything else so much more tricky and problematic in the face of that. No, go yes, ahead. I agree. That's good. So I, I agree with the second part of your point. Um, that there is something um, extraordinarily corrupting, you know, in the ways that you've just described about inequality. I mean, I'm less um, comfortable than you seem to be, you know, with uh, inequality per se. Um, so, you know, one of the most famous, um, you know, thought experiments uh, was devised on this by Derek Parfit. Um, and the, the thought experiment is meant to test how strongly we feel about inequality per se. And it roughly, you know, goes like this. You know, Roger Crisp, whom you interviewed, you know, recently talks about this as well in some of his work. I mean, suppose that you have a group of millionaires and a group of billionaires. And then there is manna, you know, coming from heaven. Now, if we take the view that, um, you know, inequality per se doesn't matter, then, you know, so long as we could give the manna from heaven to the billionaires, you know, without any instrumental bad, you know, without any bad arising from this, then there would be no objection, you know, to it. My intuition is that in this particular case, we should give the manna to the millionaires, that there is something protanto bad, you know, in a world in which we have some billionaires on the one hand, some millionaires, you know, on the other hand, where we can distribute a resource which we decide we're not going to give, you know, to the millionaires. So you know. this actually brings me on to my next question, which is the role of intuition. Just to sort of answer that thought experiment, yeah, we undeniably have an intuition about equality, and that's revealed yeah. by that case. Yeah. I think morally correctly, though, um, we ha- th- 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 there's clearly... Um, it's desirable and ethical to to attain a certain minimum standard of living right. for everyone yep. in a society. And I think the standard of living that we could in modern societies give and should be obligated yep. to do might be counterintuitively high. We might right. be able to get everyone to like actually a good middle-class living whether or not they have the ability or inclination to work for it. We, we right. might be able right. to do that. Yeah. 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 Um, but if you imagine two worlds, one in which everyone has an income of, I don't know, 50 or 60,000 a year, and then there's a few who have a bit more than that, and then another world which is identical, but one person is a billionaire. I'm sort of morally neutral between those two worlds. I don't... Right. I don't, so I don't really... World, yeah. So in the second world, um, the only difference is that um, amongst the few who are better off, one of them is a billionaire. Is that the difference between... Yeah, so, so you've... So let, let's make sorry, let's make it even simpler. You've got one society in which the income range is say fifty to a hundred a year, right? And everyone falls okay. in that range, no one's below it. You've got another society in which everyone's in that range, but you maybe have a handful of billionaires on top. Uh, yeah. So so I'm not I'm not my intuition I mean of course, you know how much weight we can ask our intuitions to bear, you know, is another matter. But, you know, my intuition is that there is something more problematic, you know, in the second world. Now, you know, my view is not that, um, you know, inequalities, um, or let me put it differently. I mean, you know, my, my view is not that whenever, you know, there is an inequality, we ought, all things considered, to remedy it. You know, all I want to say, and it's a weaker claim, is that it's 
pretend to the second of your two words is pretend to worse you know than the first now whether we ought you know to um, bring you know the second word closer to the first is a separate question it might be that you know in order to do so you know we would have to act in ways you know which would be unjustified um and so unjustified that we ought or things considered not to do it but on my view there would be a moral remainder if you will, you know, we would have sacrificed something, you know, by not acting, and that something would be less inequality. I'm not sure, because say you're in the second world, once you're in the second world, there's clearly a case to start taxing the billionaires, because if right. we start taxing the billionaires, and then we can get the minimum from 50 to 55, right. say, right. Okay. then that would just sort of be... There's just a very clear utilitarian logic leading right. me there. But yeah. I'm not sure that on the face of it, there's any moral difference between those two. I think it feels like there is, but I'm not sure that there is. And then, But then there's all sorts of side effects in terms of like political economy, right? Would those billionaires then wield much more power? Yeah. I think inequality of power... Right. Okay. Is is a problem, right? Right. right. Um, and in some ways, it's probably always going to be impossible to to separate inequality of power from inequality of wealth, because wealth is a form of power. Right. But assuming you could get a real clean divide, I don't know. I'm I'm sort of agnostic on that question. Yeah. So I think. Um, well. So part of uh, my intuitions are partly driven by um, you know, considerations of how the billionaire may have acquired his wealth. Um, and of course, I mean, as you know, you know, there is a lot of work in the literature on you know, the, the degree to which you know, inequalities which can be traced to people's choices are you know, morally acceptable as distinct from inequalities which can be traced purely to luck. Um, and it seems to me that um, you know, if the billionaire you know, is a billionaire by you know, sheer brute luck, um, then, you know, the, the less well-off people might have a complaint actually against her. So, you know, why? Why should you have all of that stuff? You know, whereas we don't. Um, yeah, I think, though, that the dessert, even bringing dessert in at all, I feel like is a mistake because no right. one, you know, even even if you say luck, well, luck, your, your IQ is luck. You did not build your yes. brain. You did not... Um, build your genes. You did not choose that the, you were born to a family that can give you an education. The amount of your life that you, you actually can claim was under your control, even stuff like the capacity to work hard, it, it's vanishingly small if yes, existent at all, you know? So yeah, yeah. I, I know I, I just say, you know, get the highest welfare possible and the biggest right. welfare losses occur at the bottom. So let's start there and map up. Right. Right. So I agree. So, so that, to my mind, is the morally urgent task, you know, what you have just described. But it's precisely because um, I worry uh, about the degree to which so much of what happens to us is traceable to luck. It's precisely for that reason that I worry, you know, about inequalities. I do think there is something profoundly um, unfair, you know, in the fact that some people just are born, you know, are, are cleverer you know, than others, or are born, I'm even more exercised, actually, by, you know, the degree to which the family in which we are born, 
you know, makes such a huge difference. It can make such a huge difference over which we have very little control, you know, over our life, you know, prospects, you know, relative to the life prospects of others. But even stuff like, you know, the phrase being in control, I think, can be a little misleading because even something like being a good decision maker yes. yeah. is, is not in your control, right? And in a sense, it all just goes down to right. so culture and genetics and upbringing and all you're left with is the idea that suffering is bad, well-being, flourishing are good, and let's just move forward from there, you know? Right. So, but that's, so what you've just described, um, you know, is compatible with two views. One which says what matters is not whether people have as much of whatever, you know, resources, well-being and so on as others. What matters is that they should have enough, that they should flourish enough. And if some flourish a little bit than a little bit more than others, then it's not, you know, something which um, is deeply concerning, morally speaking, so long as everyone, you know, reaches a minimum, you know, threshold. Um, and of course, you know, I, I can see the force, you know, of that view, but there is a part of me which can't quite let go of the intuition that there is a sense in which, and it might be a very weak sense, but nevertheless a sense in which there is something to be regretted, you know, to a world in which the billionaires have more, you know, than the billionaires, um, you know, particularly if they have done nothing whatsoever, you know, to, um, well, to deserve it. I think the language of desert you know, is somewhat problematic there. Yeah. So let's make explicit something that's been floating around this conversation up to this point in that I was not disagreeing, but just noting an intuition of mine when you talked yep. about organ sales. And you were, again, not disagreeing, but noting a counterintuition of yours when talking yes. about wealth yes. inequality. Yes. So what weight do we, if, if, if what, what it comes down to is we actually just sort of feel differently about yep. a particular example, what weight do we put on that feeling normatively? So I think that's a very, very deep, very important question. Um, I don't have a good answer to it. Uh, I, I don't work in metaethics, um, but that really is what metaethicists do. Um, so, um, okay, so, so briefly, so, so when I say my intuition is blah, I never take that to be vindictive. And I realize that I may have given, you know, the impression of doing so in our compensation, but, you know, I never, I never think, oh, well, that's the end of the matter. So I think of my intuitions, and I think most philosophers, um, you know, I know of who work in those areas would say something similar. I mean, I think, you know, I think of my intuitions as simply the raw material, you know, on the basis of which I try to construct, you know, reasoned argument. So, um, you know, the method that I tend to use, and I'm certainly not the only one, I think it's a very, very um, uh, widely used method, uh, is the method of reflective equilibrium that Rawls, you know, describes, you know, in a theory of justice. So, you know, you start with a set of intuitions, um, and then you try and justify or articulate and explain why you might have, you know, that intuition. And then, you know, you examine when that intuition conflicts with other, you know, intuitions, and you look at the general principle that that other intuition, you know, seems to illustrate, and then you try, you know, and move forward, um, you know, in the argument um, by, you know, working out, you know, which of those arguments achieves the greatest degree of internal consistency. That's an important you know, test, you know, of, um, of uh, plausibility, which argument, 
you know, is vulnerable to the greatest number, you know, of objections that you think at the moment are not answerable, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so there's, there's two thoughts I have here. The first is when it comes to our intuitions about policy or policy choices, they're clearly not just a bit incoherent, but they're clearly completely incoherent. Right. Right. And then the, th the other thought is it's not just that they're not reliable, it's that they're actually reliably bad in that most right. people through human history will have had some sort of intuition about what women can and can't do yeah. doesn't uh, uh, all cash out scientifically yeah, or about absolutely. race or, you know, you, you read um, the writings of slaveholders who yeah. I think we think of it as like, you know, an economic form of exploitation, but many of them were completely aware that this made no sense in utilitarian yeah. terms or even in economic terms, yeah, yeah, but they yeah. had a very just passionate commitment mm. to... To, to 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 just th this this way of life right and so our, it seems to me like our moral intuitions you, you know there, there can be such a thing as just a straight moral illusion right where it just really feels that something is a certain way and no, actually I... just the, the, in the case of say assuming women are say less intelligent or capable yeah, than men yeah. most people in history will have had this intuition right but it actually is just factually false yeah. And I think you can have really strong intuitions in the case of, say, slavery that just are sort of ethically false. Did, did that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I mean, so, so do you think there is a difference between... So you've, you've said, OK, most people have had that intuition, um, you know, about women um, or about the appropriateness of holding in slavery, you know, human beings, you know, um, from particular ethnic groups and so on and so forth. And you've said it's just plainly false. Now, do you think that, um, you know, those intuitions have the same um, uh, status, uh, epistemic normative status, or at least epistemic status as the, the thought that the earth is flat? Uh, so, um, no, I, I think the claim about women's intelligence, I, I think we don't fully have all the information we need, but at, at some level, if you could really get a hard measure on intelligence, even if it was quite a narrow one as something like problem solving yeah. ability or something like that, you might eventually be able to get that claim down to the epistemic status of something right. like that the earth is flat. As regards to slavery, when I say morally false, I think my, and, and I think I'm just revealing myself as kind of just a brute force consequentialist in this conversation, uh -huh. is I think there's layers of intuition, right? And I think what Rawls wants to do is just say, we've got this complete map of all the different ones and we're going right. to try and draw a circle that sort of, you know, we get some on the inside and some on the outside and get the most coherent circle possible. I would say there's some that are more fundamental than others. So I would right. say our intuition that suffering is undesirable yeah, is good. sort of more fundamental yeah. in a sense yeah. than our intuition. So, so like my intuition that there's something off about kidney sales should i should be open to being overridden by yes, evidence yes. that there would be less suffering in the world if we allowed it and i yeah. think you can see this really clearly in something like mathematics right where there's this famous thing where thomas hobbes the political philosopher reads mm -hmm. pythagoras's theorem and he goes well that's obviously wrong and then he reads the axioms and the steps right. And yeah. then his intuition of like Good. the laws of addition overrides his intuition 
the, right. the this square angles of a triangle. I forget yeah. what the theorem is even, is yeah. wrong. And I think something similar can happen in moral terms. In but we're just yeah. in some but but there's so much more uncertainty built yeah. in. Uh, so uh, so yeah, go ahead. I agree with you. So so you know, one way to think about it um is both um might seem both depressing on the one hand, but less depressing, you know, on the other hand. And you know, the thought here is this that you know, in just the same way as there are, you know, some uh, postulates or at least axioms in mathematics which you just cannot prove, you know, in a non-question-begging way, you know, so it is in some cases in ethics. Um, so you mentioned um, uh, the thought that, uh, you know, causing you know, suffering needlessly is morally wrong. You know, another one that my former doctoral supervisor, Jerry Cohen, was fond of invoking is the principle of fundamental equality. So, you know, the idea that, you know, unless you have, you know, a good reason not to, you ought to work on the assumption that, you know, other human beings are your moral equal. That's the default. That's the starting point. Now, Cohen used to say and writes and others do that you can't really show that to be true. You know, in a way that's non-question begging and in a secular way. Once you've given up on saying God has created us equal, therefore, then you really struggle to find the tools, you know, to justify, you know, the principle of fundamental equality. So that's the depressing bit. The depressing bit says, well, then we are left, you know, with an utterly groundless, you know, morality. The less depressing bit is twofold. It consists in saying, well, is morality less grounded in this sense that mathematics, that's question number one, uh, or, or less depressing bit number one. The less depressing bit number two consists in acknowledging that the overwhelming majority of you know, people who are intellectually serious, by which I don't mean, you know, academics or professional philosophers, but, you know, anyone who generally wants to think about those issues in an honest way, they, they all believe in the principle of fundamental equality. The disagreements, you know, have to do with whom, who falls within the scope, you know, of the principle. So do women fall within the scope of the principle? Do primates, you know, fall within the scope, you know, of the principle? The disagreements also have to do, once we have agreed on the scope, have to do with what follows, you know, from the requirement that we should treat, you know, one another as equals. And there you can make progress. And I'll give you an example, you know, with the case of women, since you brought it up yourself. You can make progress by pointing to internal contradictions, you know, in the other parties in a position. And one of the best examples I can think of um, uh, in this respect is uh, G.A. Smale's, you know, work on the subjection of women. It's an extraordinary piece of work because what he does is that he dismantles to, in my view, enormous, you know, rhetorical effect. He dismantles inch by inch, you know, arguments aiming to show that women are not men's equals. But he does so by pointing out internal in a contradictions, you know, in those arguments. So if you think X, then you cannot consistently affirm that women are not in men's, you know, equal. And I think that's the best way. I mean, in many cases, it seems to me that that's the best way, you know, to make progress. Yeah, so I've got a few thoughts here. Let me just pull them together. First of all, Mill is my favourite philosopher. Oh, good, and it's, that's good. It's, it's only added to by how how really startling ahead, startlingly ahead of the curve he was yeah. Yeah, on yeah, yeah, yeah. women's rights, on, yes. like, ex-slave populations and yeah, so on. Absolutely. 
Um, thinking about this idea of what are we really anchoring moral value systems to, there's internal and external contradictions, right? So, so the, the co contradiction I was talking about with women's equality yeah. was that in some sense we actually are getting close to being able to say we actually just know with with an epistemic certainty of something like science that right. some of the, the, the claims yeah. of an innate inequality just don't line I up to the to the world now with regards to what what so, so so i think we should always be ready to have our moral theories overridden when they're in contradiction what? to sort of facts that have an yep. epistemic certainty of science then there's also the internal thing i think i might be a little more optimistic than you in saying right. that, that some of the what you called brute force moral assertions i think you're not going to get the epistemic certainty of the earth is round what you might get is something a bit like i think therefore i am and i made the same argument oh, okay, with, with, yeah. with with roger crisp when i was talking utilitarianism with yeah, him good in that I think, so I think therefore I am is sort of one of these well-known things. You, you really can't doubt your own consciousness, yeah. right? But then it's not that much of a step from there to say it's really difficult to doubt that there are different, I think the word experiences gets misused in philosophy. Right. There are different aspects of your consciousness. There are different things it can do. There are right. different... Let's just use the word experiences. There's different experiences within consciousness. And you sort of know some of them are more or less desirable than others. And if you sort of say, well, in virtue of what are they desirable? There's nothing, there's nothing outside of that that you can, you can anchor it to. Right, but good. it's really sort of quite difficult to doubt that there are distinct experiences within yeah. consciousness and that we'd rather some of them over others. And then you can just map forward from there. And in terms of equality of persons, all you really need to grant me is that we're not um, solipsists. We're not, we, we assume other people have consciousness and internal lives as well. And right. if they do, and they're at least comparable to ours, then they matter in the same way that ours do. Well, so that's the step that, you know, um, uh, an absolute egoist, you know, might, and a consistent egoist might deny and this is where it becomes difficult, right? So, so you can imagine someone say, well, yes, well, you know, those people are like me and I'm like them in fundamental respects. But, you know, so long as I don't ask that they treat me in particular ways, why should I treat them? So, I mean, here, here I'm going to say something which I think will, will maybe alarm some, is that the, the, it seems to me they're just two separate questions. There's... Um, I sort of know my own conscious experience, right? right? And I can have preferences about where I move within that space. Right. And there's what's desirable for me, and then there's what's desirable right. total for all conscious creatures. Right, right. Those are just separate questions. And they, 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 I think they align more than we might think. I think behaving right. in manifestly unethical ways tends to lead to more suffering for ourselves. But that's not an iron law. There will be cases where they diverge. Yeah. So, 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 so I think so. You, so this is where you know it's clear that you are more optimistic, you know, than I am. Um, but so my worry is precisely with those cases, 
you know, where it's not clear at all, you know, that the agent will benefit, whether subjectively or objectively, actually, you know, from acting, you know, in ways which I regard as um, as ethical. Can I go back to your science book? Is there was a very interesting news story in the UK uh, this past week. I don't know whether you've seen this uh, in the US, uh, though it matters to the US. It's to do with lobsters. Have you seen that? Um, so, you know, the traditional right. way of cooking lobsters is to boil them, you know, slowly. Uh, you put them in water live and conscious, and then, you know, the water, you know, is brought to a boil, so the lobster is boiled alive. And the, the, the argument um, uh, in favour of or meant to show that it was a right to do it that way always was that they didn't feel pain. But it seems actually, I mean, you know, some scientists have, you know, tried to show that contrary to what we have thought lobsters do you know feel pain they are sentient they have a central nervous system you know etc etc so i think that's a very very good example you know of where in the face of science that we have no choice you know but to revise you know our judgments as to you know how i mean that's even assuming that the case for vegetarianism has not been made but you know you know we have you know we have to revise, you know, our judgments, normative judgments about how, you know, what is the best way, you know, to behave towards, you know, this particular, you know, this particular creature. Um, so so. That would be a perfect example, though, of um, a sort of one intuition being yes. overridden by a more fundamental exactly. one. So yeah, we have exactly. an intuition that it's my, it's just a big sea That's bug right. and I can boil it if I want to. That's right. And then right. actually... Yeah that's overridden via one of these scientific epistemic facts that's about right. the world that it's overridden by the intuition that suffering is bad exactly exactly so we have that we have that um, you know fundamental intuition that suffering is bad uh, from which we derive you know more specific intuitions based on certain facts and when those facts are wrong turn out to be wrong um, I, it is the case let's assume for the argument that lobsters feel pain, then we have to abandon, you know, the more specific intuition that it's morally acceptable to boil, you know, a lobster, you know, alive. Right. So I think that, yeah, so I think that's a very good example and recent, you know, example, you know, of, um, of how to do, you know, this particular kind of work. And then you can just scale that up to human society, right? And now, obviously, once you scale it up to human society, it's just infinitely more complicated, right? The, yes, the lobster one's quite yeah. binary. It feels pain or yeah. it doesn't, or, or it doesn't. to what degree, That's right? right? Yeah. Whereas with humans, um, clearly we're talking... I get into all of this with Roger Crisp, so I don't want to redo that conversation, but yeah. clearly we're talking a much more complex network of variables. It's not just a simple Benthamite That's pleasure right. minus pain. There's all That's sorts right. of things we desire. Yeah. And as soon as we talk about it, even to use a word like desire or preference yeah. or good or bad, we're applying concepts to that experience, yes. which in yeah. themselves are very vague, very imprecise. And very problematic, yeah. Exactly. And then even if the concepts were clear, the the methodological even if we understood exactly at the level of the brain what's desirable for us which we don't like how you'd actually actualize that in the world given how yes. complex political yes. and economic and social systems are That's... but with all I mean, that yeah, yeah go ahead i mean not least because um we each every single one of us have you know different desires which are quite often you know mutually you know, incompatible. The, the fulfilment, you know, of which, um, uh, fulfilments of which, you know, quite often are incompatible, you know, with each other and so on and so forth. So I agree. If you scale it up, um, as you put it, then it becomes enormously, you know, complicated. 
Okay, well, we've run over time a little, so that, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Professor, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank um, you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the first ever episode of the Political Philosophy Podcast. This is a free podcast. I'm doing this purely as a passion project. So no charge, no fee. The one thing I'm asking of the audience, if you did like the show, is help us build a a bigger audience. This will help me get better and better guests on in the future. So nothing major. But if you do want to hear more episodes like this, one thing you could do to help out is just share this episode or the site for the podcast generally on your own social media. One thing I've been asking some friends to do is like our Facebook page, which is just at Political Philosophy Podcast. And then under the community section, Facebook has an option where you can invite your friends to like the page. So just like our Facebook page, which again is at Political Philosophy Podcast, and then just invite anyone and everyone who you know who has an interest in either politics or philosophy or you think might be into this sort of thing. My guest next week will be the Fordham Law Professor gubernatorial and congressional candidate and anti-corruption campaigner, Zephyr Teachow. Zephyr's a pretty amazing woman who literally wrote the book on corruption in American history, and for those of you who know New York state politics, has been a really big force in dragging the New York state Democrats more towards the left and away from a more corporatist Democrat direction. She's also just been a tireless advocate um, against rulings like Citizens United. So we had a really great conversation where we talked both about corruption, but also about what it means as people of the left to be citizens in Trump's America. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I hope you'll come back to join us for it then. Uh, Once again, just to stay up to date with these and get the new episodes, you can like, follow, subscribe on social media platforms of your choice, and all those links are available at our website, which is just politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. This has been just a blast for me, but I do hope at least some other people enjoy it as well. And if you know someone you think might, please help out by just forwarding, sharing, getting the, getting the word out there for a new and I hope really exciting project. <laughs>